The reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 25. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation of the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. Thanks be to God. Those of you who are preachers will know that some sermons come more easily than others. Uh, This is one of the harder ones. Um, One of my great great memories of training for the Methodist ministry in Cambridge was the New Testament uh, lectures that we used to go to at the university, delivered by the redoubtable Professor Morna Hooker. Good Methodist local preachers, our Morna. Uh, I was doubly impressed because um, it was Morna who had written the textbook that I had used in my studies as a Methodist local preacher on the New Testament. Um, introduction to the New Testament by Morna Hooker. Uh, she would lean in the lectures. She would lean against the blackboard in the lectures. Yes, this was the days when blackboards were still in use in lecture theatres. And her lectures on the theology of Paul would often culminate with this. Uh, She would say with emphasis, Sarks, ladies and gentlemen, Sarks. And then she would turn on her heel, swish out of the lecture theatre, trailing a cloud of chalk dust in her wake. It's very dramatic. But more than dramatic, it pointed out one of the really important things about the theology of Paul. For Paul, there is a huge difference between the body and the flesh. The flesh is sarks, and it is that which we need to overcome. 
It is that which we need to turn our backs on. It is sarks, the flesh, that leads to all kinds of damage and separation from God. Don't think that Paul is negative about the body. For him, there's no problem with the body. He's not prudish in that way. The thing that Paul has a problem with is sarks, the flesh. It's constant pull away from the Spirit and from God. But the first thing, the first thing that Paul says in this passage that we've read this morning is that we are children of God. Now, I work with children all the time, lots and lots of children. Some of them wouldn't thank me for calling them children because they're 16, 17, 18 years old. And you've seen some of the work that goes on in that video that we watched earlier. Notice, Paul doesn't talk about us being adults in God, but children. There's a newness, a young quality, a parent-child quality to the relationship that we should have with God. And that's okay. You know, a lot of the children that I work with every day uh, massively, daily, surprise me by their maturity. Uh, Not in a weird or unpleasant way. They are still children, but they have the ability often to see the point of view of somebody else. Their ability to judge and think and speak with care their ability to be kind to others and see the best in others is often incredibly surprising and moving to me. Yes, the children and the young people that I work with all the time are often extremely mature. In comparison, and you can see where this is going, uh, I have often worked with adults who have sadly behaved like children. Uh, who have said the most terrible, unkind, hurtful things about other people, who have damaged themselves and others in the saying of it. Adults who have behaved selfishly and without thought or kindness or even a hint of compassion. Perhaps it's not such a bad thing after all to be reminded that in our relationship with God, we are children. And that's okay, because that balances the relationship properly. So we are children of God. Imagine it. What an incredible thing to be able to say. But how does that relationship work? Well, we've got to be clear here. These are all images, all pictures that Paul is using to try to explain the almost inexplicable. It's not easy. How do you describe the relationship that human beings have with the entity that is responsible for behind the creation of the entire universe? How on earth can we have a relationship with a being like that, a force like that? The language that Paul goes on to use is the language of adoption. As children of God, he says, we are adopted into the family of God. I think this is all about realization, a gradual growing nearer. It's almost about stopping trying so hard and being prepared to let go. 
hopefully the next, over the next few months, as you drive up the Whitstable Road, you're going to see a rather large change uh, in Kent College. If the planning permission comes through, and of course we all we hope that it does, uh, then next spring you're going to see a major new building starting to go up on the school grounds just next to the road. Our own 600-seater theatre venue for worship, concerts, events, and shows. I'm only telling you this because we are hoping, hoping that one of the opening events of the Great Hall, as we're going to call it, is going to be a music and drama happening about the life and the ministry of John Wesley, which the executive headmaster, David Lamprey, is going to write the music for, and apparently he tells me I'm writing the book and lyrics for. <laughs> Help. Um, that means that I spent the last week, while enjoying the loveliness of the Scottish Highlands and Royal Deeside, I also spent at least part of that week reading up on the life of the great man himself, John Wesley. I find him endlessly fascinating. Uh, on May the 24th, 1738, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, had his heartwarming experience, his conversion experience, we're told. But what was it a conversion to? It wasn't a conversion to him becoming a Christian. He was already a minister of the church, and not only that, but he had a very active faith. He was already being criticized for being too radical, too heartfelt in his religion. His conversion also didn't give him certainty. Just months after the warmed heart experience, he was having tremendous doubts about his faith. So what is May the 24th all about? <clears throat> For me, it is about Wesley beginning to understand the giftedness of our relationship with God. He has been trying so hard with every ounce of his being to be a good Christian. Before his warmed heart experience in 1738, Wesley had been to America, a tiny boat on a rough sea, an incredible spirit of adventure. On the way out to America, he had lived the most extraordinary life. If somebody could get Christianity just by trying really, really hard to be a Christian, Wesley would have done it. His daily timetable on the boat sailing out to America looked like this, and this is three months' worth. Two hours a day in private prayer as soon as you get up, two hours a day leading public prayers on the boat, two hours a day in Bible study, two hour-long meetings with his small group to report on successes and failures and plan ahead, then an hour reading to a small group of passengers, and he then spent a further three hours a day learning German so that he could converse with the Moravians on board the ship. A total of 13 hours a day, every day, as Wesley would later say, never be triflingly employed. If you could become a Christian by trying really hard and doing lots of stuff, Wesley would have cracked it. For me, the conversion experience is about Wesley having a direct experience of the grace of God. The grace of God that says, you are my absolute beloved child. I have adopted you into the family of faith. Stop trying so hard and allow the fact that I am God and I have done all of this for you 
to be enough for you. You need to rest in me, to stop trying so hard, build your relationship gently with me, understand that this is not about the sarks, the flesh, but this is all about the spirit, and allow yourself to understand that you can have a relationship with me that is so close, so intimate, so intense, that the only word that is appropriate for it to use is Abba, Daddy. So already we have two incredibly powerful images. We are children of God and we are adopted by God into a family of faith. But Paul then goes on to use the most audacious, the boldest image of them all. Because not only are we new children, not only are we adopted, we are also, Paul says, heirs. Heirs of God. Now, what that means is very complicated. An heir is somebody who legally inherits a title or goods from another person, but it is also somebody who gets some traits from or carries on the tradition of somebody else. Paul has said we are the children of God, that we are adopted by God. That's all fine. But what does it mean to be an heir? Paul's got in mind here, I think, the Old Testament when God promised the Israelites to give them a land of their own. He's already hinted earlier in Romans that this is an inheritance that includes the whole world. He now goes even further. The entire world, the created order, is going to be made over to the Messiah and his people and with eventual resurrection, that entire creation will be set free itself from corruption and decay. It's an extraordinary promise. So we are children. We are adopted. We are heirs. All pictures which tell us one thing. We have the most amazing potential relationship with the God who created all things. A relationship that can and should be close and open and glorious and grace-filled and life-giving. A relationship that is gifted to us by grace, but which implies turning our backs on the behaviors which deny that relationship. Behaviors of greed, violence, anger, hatred, sucks, ladies and gentlemen as Mona Hooker used to say, sucks. Glory in that relationship. Let it flow and cascade and wend and weave its way through your life. Do all that you can to develop it, to rest in it, to glory in it, to let it mold and shape and give glory to our days. In Jesus' name, amen.